und herzlich willkommen bei Multilingual Stories. Mein Name ist Dr. Bettina Gruber und ich bin die Linguistin. Ich unterstütze voller Begeisterung mehrsprachige Familien mit Herz und Verstand auf ihrem individuellen Weg, damit ihre Kinder alle Familiensprachen erfolgreich und mit Leichtigkeit lernen können. In meinem Podcast bekommst du sehr persönliche Geschichten von Mehrsprachigkeit aus der ganzen Welt zu hören. Lehn dich zurück und lass dich inspirieren. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Multilingual Stories. Today's episode is going to be in English again because I have a very special guest, Dr. Shireen Sharan who recently got her PhD in psychology at the University of Edinburgh doing research on bilingualism and autism. And I recently heard about that research and found it super fascinating and immediately asked her to be on the podcast to tell you the story that she found out and her own story, of course. Hi, Shireen. Hello. Hi, Bettina. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Please introduce yourself. Tell us who are you? Where are you from? How did you grow up? Okay, uh, so um, my name is Shireen, and I actually was born and raised in Abu Dhabi. Um, my family is originally from Egypt, um, and so I lived here like full time, pretty much until the age of twenty uh, one. Um, so living in the UAE gave me, I would say, a competitive competitive advantage as far as languages are concerned because uh, we kind of have two official languages here both English and Arabic mm -hmm. um, and obviously my family is Arabic speaking but then you know once you start going even to mainstream school um, from kindergarten all the way up you know the English is definitely um, a core part of your curriculum and so we take the subjects in that language but we also take some subjects in the Arabic as well so we kind of grew up bilingual and um, maybe sometime in high school you're also given you know the option of going for like a third language so you get to choose like French, Spanish, um, maybe some um, couple of other languages as well. Um, so I took a bit of French when I was in school as well but you know I uh, wouldn't dare say anything in French right now uh, now that I'm the older and have lost most of that language but um, yeah it's just a very diverse multicultural society so about maybe 10% of the entire population is actually from the UAE, like actual um, local. And then about 90% is just from all over the world. So that's the expats just from everywhere. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's just all too common for us just to be always exposed to like different languages, different cultures, um, and to grow up in, in that sense. So we actually, you know, always felt like growing up, we were global citizens. Um, and just about when I was done with my university here, I moved on to do my master's in the UK. And, you know, that's, again, just more exposure to even like more languages, even within an academic kind of like setting. Um, so, yeah, that's where I grew up and where my relationship with uh, languages sort of began. So from birth, 
And um, as far as the topic is concerned with bilingualism and the autism, so um, my younger brother is autistic and we um, grew up also with a family center that specialized in providing support for autistic children and their families. Um, and so that was always a core part of like even my journey, just my the personal journey, not even my academic journey. Um, and when I was in college um, here, I took a course called The Psychology of Bilingualism. Mm-hmm. And that, that course was just talking about, you know, just different, how does bilingualism impact your cognition, like generally speaking. And so I just kind of like pieced it together. I was wondering what bilingualism, uh, what kind of impact it would have on your cognition, particularly if you were autistic, for example, because, you know, the research has has and continues to be typically focused on typically developing children. Mm-hmm. And so I would say this is a very new wave of research. Uh, and that's when I found out that this interface had received very little attention in the scientific community. And that's mm-hmm. why I wanted to pursue it moving forward. That's absolutely fascinating because that was very early on in your career that yes. you through happening into a course, basically. I mean, that, that yes. was not in your curriculum, probably. You, yes. just, you, know, you picked that course because it sounded fascinating. Yes. And then yes. like years later, you actually get the opportunity to do a PhD exactly yes. on that topic. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. Come together really logically, really yeah. beautifully. Yes. Yeah. In, in hindsight, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. So how was the experience for, so how much do you know, what can you share about the experience of your brother growing up um, in um, the, the Emirates and uh, with the two languages, at least for him as well, I guess. So what could you observe um, him growing up with the two languages? Well, um And I would say this is one of the core motivations um, for research at this the interface. Um, he firsthand experienced uh, these, you know, widespread notions that exist uh, until now that autistic children might not be able to handle a second language and that it might be too confusing and there's already a bit of language delay in the first language. So why would you introduce a second one? So coming from that, you know, standpoint, my um parents made a decision to focus um, um, on delivering the monolingual programs mm-hmm. with him, um, uh, which is which quite common. Terribly like, in your case, probably. Yes, 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 yeah. exactly. Exactly. So they focused on one language, um, just like, again, thousands and maybe even millions of parents there, because um, um, they themselves um, had this notion, but also they were given that advice by speech therapists, um, practitioners that... Let's just stick with one language and um, that would be the best course for him uh, in the meantime. So he was verbal. Um, he was also included in main, the mainstream schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he could have, you know, definitely been exposed to a second language and, and had some positive outcomes there as well, like even from a linguistic perspective uh, in verbal domains, just with communication and everything. But yes, so like many children today and back then, he um, wasn't really given that option um, because, you know, they really did think that th- this this was best at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, while he was exposed to second language all the time, it, it was just passive exposure. It's not active engagement with a second language. And therefore, you know, there were no um, uh, there was no there were no the outcomes there as far as like at least verbal and maybe even nonverbal domains as well. Mm-hmm. So that was his experience. Yes. OK. okay. Um so what's your view on that now that you've uh, completed yes. um, your research on this topic? Well, um, so my view is based on 
evidence-based findings and um, the collective literature that we have to date. You know, it's just a handful of studies, but it's been done across different the context, different populations, um, and also samples that weren't necessarily from um, from the West. So we also have some research here from the Middle East, and it all converges to the same conclusion. Um, with two key findings. So we either found an advantage for bilingual autistic children um, in specific areas like their thinking skills. So these are basically skills like your working memory, your sustained attention, your inhibition skills, and your flexible switching skills. Hold on, yes. this is going a little fast. Now. Go ahead. Um, yes. Okay. So wait, you found advantages for autistic children that are growing up bilingually compared to... Autistic monolingual children, children that are growing monolingual. up monolingually. Yes, ex exactly. So the, there were some advantages um, that we picked up on using some types of measures. So we used a mix of measures. There were like direct measures of thinking skills. Um, and um, so there was like computerized tests. So like the children would sit down and play games on the computer. And these games would pick up on your abilities on things like your working memory, your attention, your inhibition, and your cognitive flexibility. So this okay. is one type of measure. So working yes. memory, that's the memory that we use all the time. That's the that's basically yes, the thing that we have at the forefront of our yes. mind, basically, that help us yes. remember short-term things. Exactly. That's working memory. Exactly. Yes. A little bit more about the other measures. Like you have inhibition. What does that mean? How does that relate to why did inhibition yeah. even come up with respect to multilingualism and autism? Yeah, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. Well, to answer this, we, we can take a step back into the theory um, and um, talk about theories of theories that chart the relationship between bilingualism and thinking skills. So why would speaking a second language even enhance, like, you know, your cognition in theory? What what is that link? Um, and so obviously there are really good theories that are founded in neurobiology, but in a general sense, like the general hypothesis is when you have, when you know two languages, you have two active languages in your mind. And um, when you frequently switch between them, you exercise certain thinking skills in your brain. So for example, I know two languages um, very fluently and um, I'm only choosing to speak one with you because I know that's the language that you know and in order to do this I have to resist interference from my other language which is also active in my brain um, so that's an interference skill of inhibition and I also use my sustained attention because I have to keep stay focused with you and speak in English um, at the same time I'm also using my working memory because I you know I hold word I hold words from both languages in my head um, and the fourth one is flexible switching so I have to you know in the right context I have to be prepared to switch back and forth between my two languages if, if say I'm speaking with another bilingual speaker of my two languages so in theory that's why we would expect you know these domains to be exercise with frequent use and switching between two languages. Um, and so basically what um, that was the first key finding is that there were some advantages in some domains. For example, there is a study that found um, an advantage for flexible switching, this switching back and forth between two, uh, two tasks or two languages, obviously, in theory, um, using a direct measure like a computerized measure of uh, the flexible switching. I found also some advantages using a parent report of thinking skills. So I've also utilized teacher and parent reports. The reason for that is if we just measure, you know, your thinking skills using one measure, say 
a direct assessment using a computer. Well, I'm just assessing your thinking skills then at one point in time. Um, so that's that's your thinking skills in 20 minutes. That's not how you are in general, right? So in order to take to you know just to make it more ecologically valid, um, I wanted to capture your thinking skills um, over a wider time uh, span and in real life context. So things that you would encounter on a day to day basis. And so with parent reports of ex- um, executive uh, the functions, so that's the scientific term for thinking skills. Um, I found widespread advantages um, across all these domains. Um, And so, you know, if I um, basically synthesize my research with the other research that's done at this, the interface, we would end up with two key findings. As I mentioned, the first one is some advantages for autistic bilinguals compared to their monolingual peers. So bilingual autistic children outperform them in these thinking domains, in some domains, or an evidence of no disadvantage. So while bilingual autistic children didn't necessarily do better than their peers, they also weren't worse off. So they performed equivalently. The most consistent finding across the literature is the second um, finding, which is an evidence of no disadvantage. So that is a consistent finding um, that comes across quite robustly. um, And it shows that there's no negative impact of bilingualism on uh, on the children. Um, And while these studies have focused on a particular sample of autistic children, so they were more cognitively abled, um, you know, they were um, in in this sense, as far as the research is the concern, so they were more verbal, they went to mainstream schools, the majority of them, and um, in terms of age, 5 to 12. There is also preliminary the evidence to suggest that even children with lower nonverbal IQ, lower than the average, also produced the same finding of no disadvantage. Okay. So the, the interesting part... Um that's been that's missing for me from that discussion now is the following. So people are worried about disadvantages. Um, and obviously what we are testing scientifically are specific mm-hmm. measures that we can look at. But what's completely neglected in that in, in that context is the the relevance of the languages for the children, which go way beyond, you know, whatever cognitive skills they may have or may not have. So um, if the child grows up in a bilingual family, that means that both languages are necessary in order to be able to relate to the family members, to interact. Um, Language, as I do not get tired to repeat, is so much more than just a means of communication. Language yes. is part of our culture. Language is part of our identity. Identity, yes. And yes. not just typically developing children, but yes. that goes for autistic children as well. So, yes. you know, saying they don't have a disadvantage simply means they don't have a cognitive disadvantage, but in fact they have a huge disadvantage I, I misspoke yes. they don't have a they don't have a cognitive disadvantage but in fact they have a huge advantage getting all the languages that are relevant in the family exactly I mean that's um, a really key point this is the main I would say the main driver behind um, the research that is focused on this topic is because um, the worldwide advice that families are getting um, is detrimental to uh, the children's 
identities and social communication within and that outside the home, just boundless, boundless opportunities um, if it's not based on the evidence. So, um, you know, just telling a family that, you know, be, you know I, I, I don't think you should be giving that second language because, you know, it's probably going to delay them further. So the evidence says there is no further language learning delay. So that's in a verbal sense. In a nonverbal sense, there is no delay to their cognitive skills. In fact, there could be some advantages in some domains using some measures. So um, language, as you mentioned, yes, it is key to forming ethnic identities and all sorts of communication and also just, you know, opportunities beyond. And I was telling um, the audience the other day through um, Katetsu's uh, the, the platform, Raising multilinguals live um, that imagine if you were denied the option of being bilingual and uh, knowing that you know we know that the bilingual population worldwide is increasing and we know also that the rate of diagnosing a person with the autism is also on the rise so these two things are on the rise and what we are being faced with is concerns from from uh, parents from the practitioners from the policymakers about raising an autistic child bilingually um, and so we should factor into the concerns that again you know um, being denied the option of being bilingual means you will get to be you know you will be cut off from all these opportunities that we are talking about which ultimately are detrimental and so based on the evidence parents are actually encouraged to use the language that they are comfortable with um, with their children and they need to factor in a few things. So number one, the evidence that we have, which is very reassuring and in, in, encouraging, but also children's preferences and abilities, as well as the family dynamics and family preferences. So combined, this is the recipe that we need to make informed language-based decisions for autistic children, just how we would do for typically developing children or the other groups. Yes. Yeah. No family is like another. Like yes. they're all individual. They have different resources. They have different preferences. They yes. have different options. They have different amount of times that they yes. spend with their children. And all that needs to be taken into account. And yes. I find it extremely reassuring to know, you know, that even if there is an autist autistic child in the family, you know, yes. you apply exactly the same measures that I apply yes. every single time that I work with a family and try to figure out what is the best strategy for that family. Yeah. And, you know, when you speak of like strategies and the information that we know at this, the evidence based and beyond, I think it's also important to clear some misconceptions because possibly one of the reasons why um, the notion that autistic people may not be able to take on a new language is the, the misconception that they generally have language delays. Mm -hmm. So this is something that parents often report in the research, but the thing that we need to know is about 25 to 35% of autistic um, individuals, you know, have like minimal verbal uh, output, whereas the majority are, you know, it is a, like a very wide spectrum and so the the majority actually have intact language skills, if not even enhanced. So um, so people should just kind of like be familiar um, with these the numbers because language delay is not a staple of the autism. It exists for some individuals across the spectrum. And we have the evidence to suggest that even those that weren't, you know, like uh, linguistically or cognitively the average they also were not disadvantaged by exposure to a second language or exposure to a bilingual environment. 
And so, so yeah, I completely understand if that's where parents are coming from, mm -hmm. then the common sense would follow that, wait, maybe we shouldn't do a second language, but um, this is where I feel it's our responsibilities, our responsibility here is like researchers and scientists to come in and, you know, com communicate. This, these are the statistics in terms of language de mm -hmm. delay and also the um, findings that we found with bilingualism and cognition and also uh, the language learning. That's such important work that you did and are doing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Um, so I have a question now about, you said earlier that the number of um, autistic uh, people is increasing. The so, number of, so not the the prevalence. So the prevalence is the, the pretty much the same to everywhere, but the rates of diagnosis are on the rise. That, yes. was my, that was going to be my question. Do you think it's... Yes. Okay, so it's the, the diagnosis. So people got better at diagnosing um, and recognizing it. Yes. Right. So, and the other um, thing that I would like you to elaborate on a little bit more is, um, you already said, autism is a spectrum. It's something that I think people, you know, are widely familiar with. Um, but uh, could you say a little bit more? You talked about this the other day as well, about yes. like... The terminology that you use, you know, is it a condition? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, excellent. No, that, that's a really um, a great question. I'm happy to receive that every time because the um, a lot of people will still associate the autism as a, a disease, something to be cured. Um, so in the essence, when we say that autism is a spectrum, it means that individuals vary wildly um, across you know, social and cognitive domains. So their abilities just range really widely um, from the intact performance to impaired to even enhanced. Um, so in a biological sense, so if we're speaking about neurobiology here, so the autism um, has been the evidence to be a brain difference. So um, autistic people are neurologically wired uh, differently. And we all fall under that umbrella term, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, neurodiversity. And so that's not just people with conditions like autism or the ADHD, but it's basically you, me, and everybody else. So um, when the research was done on like a neurological level, biological level, genetic level, cognitive level, behavioral level, we see evidence of difference, not dysfunction. And so that's why, um, you know, it wouldn't be correct to um, use terms like the autism spectrum disorder, for example, because disorder dysfunction is something that we would need the evidence for. What we see are differences across these domains. And um, so I use either the autism or autism spectrum conditions. So it's an evidence of difference, yes, disability, yes, but not dysfunction, not disorder, not disease. Yes, so that, but I think it also I think it would be appropriate to add a note here about the autism. Um, so a large majority of people on the spectrum could present with comorbid conditions, and so basically could be autism plus something else like ADHD or autism plus uh, epilepsy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a large number of um, autistic people, but it's important to separate the two. So the epilepsy is not the autism, ADHD is not the autism. Um, so I think that's um, quite key. Um, and also just realizing the challenges that are ahead or that are you know currently the presenting, if you do have comorbid conditions, you wouldn't want to attribute something to the autism, mm. for example, um, if there was also something else 
the presenting. So I think that's just something key that is characteristic about the autism. It's um, a spectrum of widely ranging abilities across various social and cognitive domains. It's, um, you know, there is um, a scientific evidence that um, suggests that it is a brain difference and um, that there are comorbidities um, sometimes associated with the autism, but that they are not the autism itself. Thank you. So um, would you like to share one of the tests, the computerized tests that you actually did with the children? So the children that you tested, were they also between 5 and 12 years old? Yeah, I mean, so yes, the yes, that was my um, age sample. Yes, they were uh, minimum five, maximum twelve, and anything above that I considered well, adolescence, not child, you know, in the research uh, sense. So um, yes, so the computerized measures obviously they, you know, varied across different domains. But if I were to give you an example from one domain, which is flexible switching, mm-hmm. so um, I use the dimensional change card sort task. So it's called DCCS. Um, so it's, you know, um, it's used worldwide in research, both with typically developing children, but also the children with conditions. Um, and so basically that is a computerized measure, maybe about 20, 25 minutes or so. And so basically children are, um, you know, they're assessed on their ability to, um, switch between rules. So in the beginning, children are asked to switch, sorry, to sort uh, pictures by a specific rule. So say sort these pictures by color. And then we move on to a new rule where they need to sort the pictures by shape. And, um, you know, um, those that exhibit, you know, a particularly well-developed ability to switch, you know, between the back and forth between the tasks based on the new rule, um, would, um, you know, show more developed, flexible switching, um, uh, skills within that task Um, and uh, basically so what we found um, with that particular task is that there was no evidence that bilingual autistic children were impaired on that task compared to their monolingual peers Um, and using that task actually another researcher found an advantage for bilingual autistic children compared to their monolingual peers so that's why I emphasize that it really has just been either an, an evidence of an advantage or no disadvantage. And that task has also been used on typically developing yes. bilingual yes. children. It's very popular. And it's been yeah. shown that bilingual children may have an advantage in yes. the task switching um, Yes, yes. And it is a test that shows like, you know, it's um, relatively suitable to use with autistic children. Um, and because, you know, it has showed like sensitivity between typically developing children versus the autistic children. So as a group, um, you know, if it's a task that can pick up on differences between typically developing children versus uh, non-typically developing, um, it, it, it was suitable. Um, something really cool to note here based on the findings is that as a group, autistic children, if you take them as an the average, they um, had a lower performance compared to their typically developing peers. But when you analyze the data on an individual level, so there are two types of analysis, either on a group level or an individual level. Um, when you look at the data on an individual level, you see that the majority of autistic children actually performed equivalently to their typically developing peers. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really key 
insight and it you know it um, lends uh, support to the theory that autism is a spectrum with individuals varying widely across their you know abilities and the and skills and you know a key defining characteristic of the autism is that is that it is a heterogeneous condition and so that was really evident from the analysis that was done on an individual level so I thought that was just really interesting because most analysis will focus on groups, group versus group. And when you do that with a condition that is as heterogeneous as the autism, you lose really key insights that you wouldn't have been able to get unless you had looked at the data that way also as well. Wow. I'm just imagining all the work that you were doing. That's unbelievable. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) How many children did you test? Well, um, the total sample size was about 93 participants. And so a little over half were typically developing and the rest were autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, to be honest, I, I mean, these are, especially with the autistic sample, these are numbers that the centers and schools here are to be applauded for because I had the support of like more than 20 mm-hmm. organizations across three cities for one year. And so it is a short period of time to really you know to maximize that sample size but thanks to them we were able to get you know um reasonable numbers to be able to do this research so we definitely need extensions and replications with bigger samples hopefully through collaborations um in order to be able to generalize the findings to the wider autistic community but still the, i mean the results are so encouraging um, yes yeah and there's consensus that's important to highlight that all the research done on this topic converges to these like two findings. So there hasn't been any evidence of, you know, a widespread disadvantage or, um, and I think it's really encouraging to also note that again, we have samples of children that are cognitively abled with like an average IQ, but also children with lower than that. And the finding still seems to persist, but we hope for more extensions in the future, more the longitudinal kind of like data. So maybe we go back a little bit to your family and your brother. Um, So how much does your brother know about your research? Did you take him with you on the journey? No, he um, doesn't know um, anything about the research. And this also goes back to the point about with the autism being a spectrum. So I think in the cognitive sense, he wouldn't be able to to grasp the, the ideas that we're talking about. But then... Again, in other cognitive domains, he will just, you know, exceed us all. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, he was um, with me in like the figurative sense because he was definitely like, you know, a key uh, a driver, not just because of the uh, link with the autism, but because he himself um, was at some point one of those children that um, were uh, denied a second language mm-hmm. due to the belief that, you know, this could overtax them or confuse them. So we are that family. We were that family at some point in time. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I'm just really glad to be part of, you know, just make a small contribution to the evidence at this um, uh, base um, to hopefully, you know, use these findings along with my the colleagues to impact uh, practice, education, and policy. Because at the moment, the problems that we have um, so much policy worldwide advising against bilingualism, mm-hmm. it's not the evidence based, and it is it has detrimental the outcomes to the domains that we had talked mm-hmm. about, identities and communication and beyond. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so definitely a very personal twist there as far as the topic is concerned. Um, but yes, I'm feeling really grateful to hopefully change that the outcome for 
other families that need to make informed decisions. So let's do something spontaneous. The whole, the whole interview is spontaneous anyway. Let's do something yes. else spontaneous. Yes. Let's yes. use the podcast for a call to action. Um, so you're mm -hmm. looking to network with um, people who work in centers, in schools. Yes. People who are involved with the autistic community. Yes. Right. So if somebody is listening right now and they are working with autistic people, mm -hmm. what should they do? Contact you, well, get in touch. Yes, I think so. I'll mention something here quite briefly because at the moment my colleagues and I are putting together a very exciting uh, uh, policy brief, which will completely touch on changes that we need to see based on the evidence. Um, so something more detailed will be out soon and I'll be very happy to share it as soon as it uh, as it's uh, ready. In the meantime, what um, I would like to say, so as far as like policies are concerned, um, they should be guided by the evidence and the, the evidence um, suggests that families should be encouraged to use the language that they feel comfortable with, with their children. Mm -hmm. um, and so it shouldn't be part of the policy to deny uh, that second language from therapeutic the programs from their mm -hmm. academic life, their social life. Um, so, you know, they should to receive that same level of integration as they're typically developing peers. Um, as far as policy also is concerned, we're also hoping to, um, you know, help organizations um, move forward with bilingual intervention the program. So that's really important as far as the therapists are concerned or the practitioners. Um, they pretty much deliver, you know, the, the, the programs in one language based on the law and the policy. So that's also something that we hope to change. Um, either a bilingual intervention, uh, the program bilingual, also assessments for the child, that's really important, um, especially when you're looking at things like vocabulary. So bilingual children in general, typically developing or not, will have smaller vocabularies if um, in each language. So if you just measure one language and don't factor into the equation the vocabulary of the other language, they come out as impaired they come out as like less. So that's also important for the assessment to be bilingual, to focus on both the languages, the intervention to focus on both languages, the social um, support that they receive from the school, um, from social environments, for that to also have a bilingual exposure should the family deem that, you know, necessary. And just to factor into the equation, like the family dynamics and their the preferences, the child's abilities also, and the preferences as well. Combined, that is the recipe for, you know, making informed based decisions um, that have to do with language. So who are you looking for right now to spread this message? Well, it will. It's um, a mix of people, really. So it's um, ultimately like policymakers that would be great because uh, practitioners and families will be following, you know, kind of like the policy that was passed down to them. Um, so definitely the policymakers, um, the educators, practitioners, families, because these are all stakeholders um, mm -hmm. at the interface that we're talking about, and also definitely at the same time other researchers um, and just the wider autistic community really um but yes i would say basically be being able to um communicate the evidence base to all of these groups so policymakers, educators if you're listening or parents if you know a policymaker or educator yes tell them about the research have them get in touch with shireen yes and we will um, also do our best to 
could distribute the policy brief that we're working on to make sure it goes to the right hands and um, generate the impact that it, that it needs. Mm. That's amazing work, really. Now, moving away from the specific focus on the autistic um, population and to simply the multilingual, bilingual, multilingual population, the children yes. and the grown-ups. Yes. Is there a a connection that you can see or that you maybe even experience between being multilingual, being able to communicate in more languages, being able to relate to more cultures, and like the big questions of our times. Like we have a few crises at our hands at the moment. Um, Do you see that, or is there a contribution that you see that multilingual people can make to these issues? Well, aside from the zoomed in, uh, potential the benefits of say enhanced uh, cognition or enhanced creativity even there's also some research on that front um, about people knowing more languages um, being linked to their creative capacities in the zoomed out sense I would say that multilingual people people are better equipped to see the world from different perspectives and this enhances their ability to communicate in today's global economy and provide global solutions so in the zoomed out sense it's the it's it is the fact that multilinguals will bring in a plethora of perspectives and um will be um flexible enough to understand those different perspectives to adapt to them to factor them into the equations that's what we need you know this um understanding and absorption of like different perspectives will ultimately lead to very productive um solutions for the global economy for today and beyond. Shireen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for your work and for sharing it and spreading it wide and loud. Um, I wish you all the best and lots of success in spreading the message and in changing the system from within. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for offering a platform for us as researchers and scientists to communicate the evidence base. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening today. If you would like to see more of my English content, come find me on Instagram. My Instagram profile is mostly bilingual English and German, and I am linking the profile in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you over there.